0: Future
1: Proof with Jonathan McRae.
0: Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. on News Talk.
1: Hello and welcome to Future Proof the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Thanks for subscribing, downloading and rating the show. We really appreciate you helping us get the word out. If you'd like to contact us you can email us science at newstalk.com or we're on Twitter at Talk Science. Coming up in this program we're going to be speaking to the great uh, Sean Carroll physicist and author about energy. Um, His new book is about trying to bridge the gap between sort of cartoon physics and the physics that is, is taught in third level institutions. And one of the things that I really am trying to get my head around is what is energy exactly? And are there energies that we haven't even heard of? Uh, so we're going to go deep into uh, some physics with a man who is very good at taking us there, Sean Carroll, in a few minutes time. But first, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining us in studio is Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and from DCU School of Chemistry, Dr. Susan Kelleher. You're both very welcome. Susan, our first story has to do with hoovering up DNA of animals. Yes.
2: That's exactly what it is. You've summarised that nicely. It is a really good story around crazy scientist's way of thinking. It's really unusual because this lady, Kristen Baumhund, who was in a professor in the University of Copenhagen, had an idea that she could use a hoover to hoover the air and then find DNA of animals in the samples that would be collected. And basically, there was a call that was put out from the Danish government that said, crazy ideas, please, on postcard. And she went for it and she got the money and she had a go. And they started this a few years ago Ago, and the first thing that they did was they went. They had to find a source of animal DNA that zoo. would be zoo. Got it in one. That Give that man. Guess. That's exactly what it was. And the reason for that, check me, is that you know rhino DNA, right? If you hoovered up, there's only one place it's going to be probably found. Okay, so it was very specific. They needed a source of animals that was very specific to a location. So they did that. So they went to Copenhagen Zoo and they brought a hoover and they hoovered the air and then
1: like a. Like a- like a what? Like a, like a Dyson or yeah. uh, what's the little fellow, Henry? I
2: should say vacuum cleaner. We're not we, any any brand of Hoover right, so would a of brand course, agnostic do, uh, <laughs> this time, <laughs> indeed. But they hoovered it up and then they collected the, the the particles that were in the bag and then they extracted the DNA out of that. A lot of cleaning, but extracted it and they found like all like loads of um, DNA from the animals from the zoo, including ones that were in houses inside the zoo that otherwise couldn't would not be there because they're not hanging out in Copenhagen. Right. So... Then they basically have said that this is a new way of sort of biomonitoring. This is, you know, obviously that's very specific in the zoo. But what they've done recently, so their most recent results, which were published this week, um, in a in a in a by in a preprint, so it's it's not peer reviewed, but it's um, very well renowned. This this work at this stage, where they took the Hoover and they brought it to a nature park in Denmark, and they used it to detect over forty percent of the native species that were in the park. What? Um, in around five days, they just hoovered, hoovered, hoovered. They took samples around different parts of the park. And then they were able to say, basically, um, like that. It was Here be 30, bears. Yeah, 32% mammal, 16% birds. Wow. 67% amphibians and then 4% fish. So even fish DNA is up in the atmosphere. So they're kind of this like eDNA, kind of environmental DNA. They don't know where it's coming from yet. That's the next question. But what's really interesting, they say, so when they did the work in the zoo, there was another um, lab in Canada that was doing this at the same time and they teamed up now and they're sort of thinking of this like global biomonitoring system where you can have these like little, like hoovers set up that'll like monitor in real time and tell you what's happening in your forest or in your area. And a big part of this is endangered animals. Where are they? Where do they go? How many are there in your area? Like, can we track them? So if you can pick this DNA from the, Atmosphere, and you'll be able to say, "Oh, this about you know Siberian wolf passed this way, and it's gone that way, and it's staying there for the winter, and etc." It's going to be able to maybe help them do a global monitoring of animals, animals. in the wild. Just is Pretty unbelievable, right? Most
3: animals seem to be afraid of hoovers, particularly my dogs. <laughs> so, like, I wonder, like, is there any effect in like sending them away? <laughs>
2: I can't say they commented on that, but um, if you'd like to get in touch with them, <laughs> you might I mean, it's
1: such a clever idea, just yeah. hoovering up the air, but I didn't realise there was so much DNA just flying about. Yes. So and your DNA must be just swimming around in this air. Indeed.
3: So, <laughs> yes.
1: I'm taking big gulps of your DNA, <laughs> essentially. Awkward pause. And we move on to the second story. So our, our second story has to do with dark energy, um, Shane. And this is uh, a big paper that essentially allows physicists to say, yeah, yeah, we're right. Yeah, which is kind of most (laughs) physics papers, isn't it?
3: Of all the things things in physics that we think are there but haven't yet detected, dark energy and dark matter must be up there. And we have spoken about it at length on the programme. And this story is about the most precise accounting yet of dark matter and dark energy, but we still haven't seen it. So what they did is they looked at two decades worth of supernovae. That's like exploding stars. They looked at 1,500 such explosions in a, a project called Pantheon Plus, And they published a whole rake of papers. And by they, I mean scientists at Harvard. So my first thing was, why are they looking at supernovae? Well, they are known as standard candles in astronomy. So when a, when a star explodes... It's very bright. So if a star was to explode in our night sky, it would appear as bright as a galaxy, but only for a little amount of time. And so because you know how bright they're going to be, you're able to tell um, where they are in time and in space. So there's there's standard points of light that you can see in the sky. And that allows then the astronomers to be able to see very, very far back in time. And so they're able to look ten billion light years uh, away, and so that that means they can see um, uh, three quarters of the uh, the time that the universe has existed. Thirteen right? billion years, yeah, exactly. So about yeah. ten billion years, they're able to see back in time. So they're able to use that to look at the rate of expansion of the universe, and that's where it comes back to dark energy. So we're able to, to to test our theories about the nature of fundamental components of the universe like dark matter and dark energy and what we can say now from this research is we can say with more accuracy how much of the universe is made up of those things. We
1: can say with uh, intense accuracy yeah. that we don't understand this exact amount of stuff.
3: Exactly, which is brilliant, right? When I say to people that physics understands all the energy and matter in the universe and we don't know about the majority of it, people say like, what are you at? But that—that's just amazing. So, sixty-two, sorry, sixty-six point two percent of the universe we would say is dark energy. Thirty-three point eight percent is a combination of dark matter and regular matter. And another outcome of this work has been to nail down the current expansion rate of the universe. So, how fast it's it's expanding? That's called the Hubble constant. But what they've seen, and this is the quirk, is that the universe has not expanded at the same rate since it started, and they call this Hubble tension. So, at the, in the early universe, it expanded at a different rate, and we don't know why, and we don't know about the transitions between the different expansion rates. Lots more physics to
1: do, Jonathan. And very here for years. very interesting. <laughs> um, our third story, Susan, has to do with Stradivarius.
2: Yes, so Stradivarius, not the shop, the um, Stradivari, who's the man himself, Robert Stradivari, who... um, was a violin maker in Itali- Italy, um, and he revolutionised. So, hang
1: on, Stradivari is the name of the fellow.
2: That's his name. Oh, and I the Stradivarius-, Stradivarius. Stradivarius is the name of the company or the name of the oh, violin that was wow. given that name. Didn't yes, know. Yes, indeed. So he was a violin manufacturer um, in the nineteen 19- in the sixteen hundreds, and he really revolutionised the way that sound would travel and the way that these were made. And Stradivarius, like why they're so special, is they are given this like they're very renowned for their clarity and for their tone, and they are considered the best violins in the world. And then scientists wanted to know why, you know were always asking questions like that. So researchers in Italy got their hands on two of these violins, one called the San Lorenzo, which was made in 1718, and one called the Toscano, which was made in 1690. And then they chemically analyzed them. So this was a non-invasive chemical analysis. It's called Fourier Transform inter um, red sorry. It's called Fourier Transform um, It's called what? In, uh, <laughs> Fourier Transform Infrared Spectroscopy.
1: This is something you teach, right? Yes, F-t- FTIR. FTIR you always it. You know. would, would be an expert that. in this.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but
1: you can't say it.
2: No. Okay, excellent. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just call it FTIR for short, and okay. then we can continue. So, it's like a speed camera, but instead of picking up you know, the difference in speeds, it picks up the difference in chemistry. So, it'll tell you like what kind of chemistries are on your surface in a non-invasive way. And people have looked at these types of violins before, um, but very, just on the surface, not very deep. So, they've used this new technique that uses a microscope as, alongside FTIR, and it basically allows you to look a little bit deeper into the sample, um, just as, again, non-invasively. And what they've been able to show is that, on really like nano scale patches within the instrument, there are proteins okay, so this is really unusual and, and what it is is basically they think that there 's a wood layer and then the varnish layer on a, uh, on a violin and When Stradivari would have been making these and um, there's the historians believe that they put down sort of like a coating that would smooth the wood before they put the varnish on it to have it a nice appearance, and then they think these little clumps of protein might be what give the very unique sounds to um, the, the violin and the way that it resonates. So they're hoping that maybe they can incorporate this to make, you know, versions of this that are equally beautiful as the original. Because because um,
1: uh, people are are struggling to recreate the stra- mm-hmm. the sound yeah. of Stradivarius violin. They yeah. they use Stradivarius methods, but they're failing.
2: Mm-hmm. So this is what they true. need: proteins.
1: And um, thank you, Susan. Our final story
3: has to do with cockroaches, Shane. And AI, artificial intelligence, what could go wrong? So a team in uh, Scotland have come up with a way to use artificial intelligence to kill cockroaches. Um, So what they've done is they've uh, they've created a device, a simple one, that uses machine vision that can accurately detect cockroaches and then neutralise them, in their words. And it can do it from over a metre away. So it's a little device and it has a turret on it like a tank. It shoots out a laser beam and uh, depending on the power that the laser beam is set, it can either cause the cockroach to fly away or it can kill it. And um, whether it's a good thing or not, the uh, <laughs> the relevant scientist has put the know-how in the public domain and listeners could, if they want, build one for as little as €250. Euros. Um, might sound great for killing cockroaches, if that's your thing, but what's to stop it from moving on and maybe like putting a you know, like mm. killing other things or you could train it to kill... Bees. Bees, yeah. Birds, maybe get a... Spiders. Sh- spiders. What so else? There, are, there are probably audience members who would be into that now. <laughs> y- yeah, definitely. I'd say there are audience members that would use it to probably target their annoying neighbour's children, to be honest with you.
1: So. <laughs> <laughs> we're, 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 we're in an era of, you know, a, a great loss when it comes to biodiversity. And I would ordinarily say this is an awful thing to be bringing to the world. But if it's just working on cockroaches, I think I'm okay with that cockroaches I think no one's going to miss the cockroaches or the mosquitoes
3: I don't know things eat cockroaches and mosquitoes
1: do you know who'd be Catherine McGuinness who's a regular on this programme she'd be giving me a lot of trouble for that because it's it's the circular life as Elton John told us (laughs) he did he did you can't be be taking one thing out and and expecting everything to be alright you upset the ecosystem (laughs) So where, where would people get the plans if they happen to have cockroaches? They <laughs> well, want, that no doubt
3: it? you are going to tweet it, Jonathan, so people can go home and just get their little lasers and, yeah, build your build your cockroach-killing device.
1: Do you know what? Other programmes have, you know, book clubs and they've got sweater patterns and, you know, people show their work uh, on Twitter. Or, if you are willing to make this, I'd love to see how, how well you do. Why do
3: people hate cockroaches? Like, what is it? I know they look oh, gross, creepy. but, like, if there was a single creature you could wipe out, is there one?
1: There, there is, there is. I'm not going to tell you what it is. (laughs) Um, Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and from DCU School of Chemistry. Dr. Susan Keller. Thank you as always. Uh, If you're someone who enjoyed that and and someone who's interested in the communication of science, you might be interested in a conference that's happening uh, December 7th in the Aviva. It's called SciCom. www.scicom.ie. We've fantastic speakers talking about how they communicate science to all sorts of audiences, including people like Patrick Frain. Uh, Florence Schechter who runs the Vagina Museum and Ulla Hasselbalch who's made an animation about a man who has an 11 foot penis and has shown it uh, to kids as a way to explain how to talk about your body. It is a very interesting event. Check it out. SCICOM.ie Full disclosure. I run this particular event. Now, for lay people like myself, physics can often seem impenetrable, despite being fascinating at the same time. And that's not just when we're talking about the cutting edge ideas out there like black holes or quantum mechanics. Often we accept the basic principles without truly understanding what they mean or how we got there. In this new book, our next guest tries to bridge that gap for us. Sean Carroll is a physicist and author of The Biggest Ideas in the Universe, Space, Time and Motion. He joins me now. Uh, Welcome to the program, Sean. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I have a particular interest um, in this book, which we're going to uh, go down that rabbit hole in a second, but maybe you might give um, our listeners a sense of what your book is about first.
0: Sure. The idea is there's two ways that we talk about physics, One, what different ways that we try to educate people. One is assuming you want to grow up to be a professional physicist, we give you textbooks, we give you years of education, we make you do problem sets, the whole bit. And the other is, if you're a person on the street, we tell you stories and draw some pictures and hide all the details. <laughs> and I think that there's room in between. I think that there's room to explain some of the details, even the equations, without necessarily assuming you're going to be a professional physicist.
1: And so the idea is to sort of add that little bit of detail to, to kind of bridge the gap, as, as we said in the intro, between uh, the sort of science communication physics and the, the, the in-the-lab physics.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's a way of talking about things that does not necessarily require that you do a lot of homework. (laughs) So you can read the book without, you know, knowing any math, without doing any calculus or anything, but I will teach you the calculus along the way and you will see the equations and you'll be able to appreciate what Newton and Einstein really did.
1: Okay, so let's talk then about energy. Um, because energy is, is, is a, fa- like a, a fascinating concept, which we all, in some ways, take for granted. But what is energy?
0: That's a great question, even though it's a very obvious one to ask, because it's, there's a tendency to think of energy as like a thing, like you, you know, can see it or touch it or something like that. But it's not true. There's stuff in the universe. There's particles. There are fields. And energy is a property that that stuff has. When we say that a certain amount of energy is in a certain location, we means that there's some object in that location that is either moving or heated up or something like that, and it ha- therefore has a certain amount of energy. And the great thing is that the different kinds of energy can be converted back and forth into each other.
1: Okay, so a hot stone gives off energy, right? But that energy goes out, so it doesn't is no longer the property of the stone when it leaves. So how can it not be? <laughs> something in and of itself
0: well it goes into something else when a hot sto- stone radiates uh there are photons there are particles of light that are leaving that carry the energy out uh this is what is called conservation of energy the total amount of energy in the universe or in any isolated subset of the universe remains constant because it goes from one thing to another my favorite example is if you have a bowling ball on the floor it has less energy than a bowling ball on the table but if you push the bowling ball yeah it does because it has there's potential energy if the bowling ball is on the table and you know that because if you push the bowling ball off it will speed up (laughs) and gain something we call kinetic energy which you can tell when it hits your foot
1: so this this idea of potential energy, this is when I, I, I was doing higher physics in school. And when someone tried to tell me that something had potential energy, that's when I said, I'm doing lower physics. And I did lower physics for my leaving service, much <laughs> to my shame because I, I said, I'm done. That makes no sense to me. So um, I want to get to conservation of energy in a second. But how can something have potential energy? How If, if energy is something that goes from one thing to another thing, How can something have potential energy? In other words, energy it hasn't got, but could have. I mean, that sounds ridiculous.
0: Well, actually, it's energy that it has. You have the potential energy, but it has the potential of being converted into other kinds of energy, like We said the kinetic energy. So if there's something that is sitting on a table or something like that, it doesn't look like it's doing anything, but it has the potential for speeding up if you push it off the table. Whereas if it's sitting on the floor already, there's no way to get it to speed up just by nudging it, right? You have to actually put some energy into it to make it move.
1: No, it doesn't make any sense to me. And, and, and to me, you know what I'm thinking? Honestly, Sean, I'm thinking this as you as a, a physicist and an author of many books. I'm going, they've got this wrong. They're going to find out later. That they've got <laughs> they've got potential energy wrong. Okay, so let's just move on. I've hit my first dead end and we're only a few minutes into the interview. Okay, so um, conservation of energy. You said that we can we know that there's only a certain amount of energy in the system and it just moves around. And, uh, and, That's right. Uh, the, the idea of that seems... Um, very transparent because we see that in Newtonian physics, right? We understand that if you hold a a, a hot stone, your hand goes hot and um, the heat goes into your hand and so on. How do you know that uh, energy is conserved? Who figured that out and how do you prove something like that?
0: Well, it's hard to prove. In fact, it's not even exactly true in the world in which we live. It's just very, very, very close to being true. And huh? it, it's not something that we uh, postulate and prove. It's something that we first come up with some laws of physics, like Isaac Newton, Galileo, people like that. And then it took centuries for people to realize that there was something called energy, which the equations of Newtonian mechanics predict are conserved, as predict is just a constant. It changes into different forms. And so it was actually uh, Madame du Châtelet, Emily du Châtelet, who showed once and for all that Newtonian mechanics predicts something called the conservation of energy.
1: Right. And, and so when we talk about that, what sorts of energy are there? Because you said energy can change form, right? Isn't that mm-hmm. right? So we can have different types mm-hmm. of energy. What types of energy are there?
0: Well, it depends on the type of object you have. If you just have like a particle, and a particle might be a bowling ball or it might be an electron, then roughly speaking it has either kinetic energy or potential energy, right? But if you have a more complicated system like a spring, if you push the spring together, there's some energy in the tension that you're creating in the spring. Or likewise, if you pull it apart, there's a <clears throat> restoring energy that wants to pull it back together.
1: But, but I mean, how do you how do you turn something like that into... Heat or electricity, for example, okay. how do you turn that sort of property of of, of energy into a, a totally different one, and is that, is that possible
0: yeah, it's absolutely possible. I mean that's what it means to be fuel, right? If you have something that like you know coal or wood or whatever, and you burn it what 's actually happening is that there's energy locked up in the molecular structure. Of that thing, coal or wood or whatever, and you're doing a chemical reaction that releases some of that energy. If you have a nuclear bomb, it's the same thing, but just at a much bigger scale because you're releasing energy that is packed into the nuclei of the atoms. But it's all just moving energy around in different ways. You're never creating energy from nothing.
1: So, so, I mean, if I were to say list all the, this is, sounds like such a stupid question. I'm so sorry, but I, <laughs> I, I made a promise to myself when I started this program, I would always ask a stupid question. Uh, Please. C- can you list all the energies? Like, you know, <laughs> no. like, you know, heat, light, um, radio waves.
0: Yeah. But there's no once and for all category of here are the different kinds of energy. Whenever we have a different kind of system, we might find that there's a new term in the equations representing a certain kind of energy. You know, when we invented quantum mechanics and we realized that particles have spin, well, if you have a bunch of particles with a bunch of spins, there's energy locked up in the relationship of their spins to each other. And, okay, that's fine. As, as you discover new stuff in the universe, you might discover new ways for that stuff to have energy.
1: Are you talking about new types of forces?
0: New types of interactions, I would say, more broadly, but yes, things like that.
1: Okay, um, and and then uh, staying with that, uh, E equals mc squared seems to say that we can turn energy into physical matter. Is is that right?
0: Well, it's right, but that's not really what the equation means because the M in that equation, E equals mc squared, is mass. Mm -hmm. And mass is like energy. It's a property. It it doesn't mean matter. It means the amount of matter that you have. And in fact, this is a perfect example of what we were just talking about because that equation is basically telling you We've realized that there is another kind of energy that we hadn't been keeping track of before, namely the mass. The mass of an object is a kind of energy. How much energy is it? M c squared.
1: Uh huh. So the mass of something is also a type of energy.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's right. And uh,
1: so, so that's right. You clarified that for me. That makes sense. That the 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 equation is energy is equal to the mass of something multiplied by the speed of light squared. Is that right?
0: Yeah. And in particular, that's only one kind of energy. This is what we call the rest energy. This is the energy that is locked up in an object, regardless of how fast it's moving or where it's located or anything like that, just inherent in it, the fact that it has mass. There's other kinds of energies, of course, as well. Such as? Such as kinetic energy, the energy of motion, you know, if you have photons, particles of light, they move at the speed of light, their mass is zero, because they can never be at rest. The rest energy is literally the energy you would have were you at rest. Photons can never be at rest, they're always moving at the speed of light, but they can still have energy, it's just a different kind of energy. Right. So. You're getting there. I like it. You're, you know, you're (laughs) you're understanding more and more. I love it.
1: So my next question is this idea of matter. Is there any, this is another stupid question. Is there such a thing as a thing then? If everything is actually a property of the thing, if, uh, if mass, if mass is a property and and energy is a property, is there an actual thing itself?
0: Do we have, do we have matter? (laughs) Now we're getting philosophical on us, but, uh, this is something that, as, as good scientists, we would like to discover rather than just assume, right? Um, as you go from Newtonian physics to quantum mechanics to quantum field theory and more elaborate things, the ways that we describe the physical world get further and further away from our everyday experience, mm. right? So, in our everyday experience, yeah, there are things. There are bowling balls. There are rocket ships. You're really obsessed with and-
1: bowling balls. Do you what? Like what, what? would you? What would you roll a game? <laughs> what's what's your what's your? I'm typical not very game? good.
0: Okay. I'm not very good, but it's better to stick with an example and, and uh, <laughs> you know get a, squeeze everything you can out of it. Okay. But the point is that yeah, these are these are all objects and they have properties. You know, a planet has a mass, an energy, a velocity, a location. These are all properties that the planet has.
1: Yeah. But is, but is the planet anything in and of itself, or is it just sure. the sum of its properties?
0: I think it's a thing. of an. Of you don't seem sure. You don't, don't seem sure, Sure. Has, well, I'm, I'm trying to be careful because this is a non-trivial <laughs> philosophy question, but it's not something that physicists worry about.
1: Right. Okay. Um, so I've done this on this program, I would say, maybe 20 times over the last 10 years. I'm going to have to do it again because I haven't got there. Can you yep. please explain electricity to me?
0: Electricity is, what well, we think of it as electricity, it's the motion of electrically charged particles. It sounds a little circular because I've used the word electrical in there, but there is a force of nature called the electromagnetic force. It can sort of manifest itself as an electrical field or a magnetic field, and there are certain kinds of particles that are pushed around by this force what we call charged particles, like an electron or a proton. If you're a neutron or a neutrino, a neutral particle, you just don't feel the electrical force at all. And when you have a wire, or something else through which electricity flows, you have an electrical field that is just pushing electrons down the wire. And it's actually the motion of those electrons, those negatively charged tiny particles that you and I think of as electricity.
1: The motion of the electrons is the electricity. Yep. And then, then how, did that, how does that turn into light or heat or TV?
0: That, <laughs> that, that requires <laughs> how does technology. my TV work? above my pay grade, right? <laughs> but, you know, depends on if you have an LED light, if you have an incandescent light, it's very simple. You have a, a little filament in there that resists the electrons going through, but the electrons push their way through, and therefore they heat it up because they're struggling against the resistance.
1: Right. So if I, if I, if I were to charge my, my battery... Um, for example, on, on my mobile phone, I'm mm-hmm. filling it
0: with electrons. You're, yeah, you're basically filling it with an imbalance between sort of electrons on one side, too many electrons on one side, not enough electrons on the other, and that wants to equilibrate. That wants to be released by giving you energy.
1: Oh, I see. And so, using the battery, you're releasing the one, the battery, the electrons that w- that want to go, and that is yeah. releasing the energy in the battery. Yep, yeah, that's right. And I'm, I think I'm getting this. Um, which my producer is astounded by because he got it the first time, but I really, really struggle with it. So then, would you say then do, do electrons have mass? Yep, they do. So, so, so a charged mobile phone will weigh heavier than an uncharged mobile phone, or is it just how those electrons are distributed within the battery that creates the potential for for power?
0: Well, the weighing refers to the mass of the phone, right? So if you believe E equals MC squared, which you should, then yeah, a charged phone, all else being equal, is going to have a very, very, very tinier but larger mass than an uncharged phone.
1: Okay. So, um... I'm going to leave it there because I think, I don't want to ask another question because I think I've got
0: it. <laughs> don't spoil it. <laughs> I think
1: I've got it. Are there exceptions to what we've talked about? Uh, like the, the, you know, the conservation of energy. You said we, you know, it's nearly right, but it's not quite right. Are there exceptions to the conservation of our energy or, or any of the things that we've talked about that, that we don't really talk about much in, 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 in everyday physics or everyday um, TV type science or radio type science?
0: There are, there are exceptions, and here I'm I'm skating on dangerous ground because even though what I'm going to tell you is true, not all of my physics colleagues have caught up to it quite yet. Uh, We have something called quantum mechanics, and one of the predictions of quantum mechanics is that when you measure a system, you can't predict precisely ahead of time what you're going to see, whether it's the spin or the position of a particle or the velocity or whatever. And it follows pretty straightforwardly from that, that you can't always predict the energy that the resulting observational outcome is associated with. So if you start with something with a definite amount of energy, you can measure it and have a different amount of energy afterward. And that is, to the observer, that is a violation of conservation of energy.
1: Yes. Where did the energy go? Yeah.
0: Well, uh, if, you're, if you're me, you, you believe in what is called the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. And basically... Do not tell one... me the
1: energy goes into another dimension. Don't say that, Sean. My head will just okay. explode.
0: I, then I can't say anything. <laughs> oh, you are kidding me? That's what you're saying? Is that what you really the think? The energy is divided up differently between the different worlds that become real after you make the quantum measurement.
1: So what you're saying is (laughs) that in the quantum world, when you uh, look at something, you don't know what property you're going to get and you can't predict then what energy you're going to get. And so by doing that, you might lose energy into another dimension.
0: I think the right way to say it is you can have, let's say you measure a single particle with a single property and it's like a yes or no, like it's spinning clockwise or counterclockwise. Yeah. Then in one of the universes, there's going to be an outcome that says it's spinning clockwise. The other one might be spinning counterclockwise. And those two universes might have slightly different energies. But basically, one goes up and one goes down. So the average stays the same. Wow. Yeah.
1: That's pretty cool. Um, I I hope you've stuck (laughs) with us because I know this is kind of crazy stuff we're talking about. But it's absolutely fascinating as well. Are there any other exceptions uh, to to these rules that we, we take for granted when when we walk about the world in our daily business?
0: Well, there's a subtle one when it comes to energy, which is that our universe is expanding. Cosmologists will tell you that distant galaxies are traveling away from us and so forth. And so if that weren't true, you could tally up all the energy in the universe, all the particles and all the photons, et cetera, and that would be a constant number. But because the universe itself is changing over time, That number changes over time. It's not actually conserved. And this goes back to a wonderful theorem that was proven by Emmy Noether, who was a mathematician in the early 20th century. When there is a symmetry, something is conserved. And the symmetry in this case is things look the same at every moment in time. As long as things look the same at every moment in time, energy is conserved. But in the expanding universe, they don't look the same at every moment in time. So things are a bit more subtle.
1: I'm not sure I get that. My producer's like, no, don't ask that. I'm not sure I get that. Explain it to me again.
0: (laughs) Well, think of it this way. Einstein tells us that space-time itself has a life of its own. It can change. It can bend. It can warp. And the expansion of the universe is an example of that. So basically, space-time itself can give energy to or take energy from the stuff that is inside space-time.
1: Right. And that should not be if we have conservation of energy
0: well you would you would like it you would like to be able to say something like oh then the energy goes into space-time, or it comes out of space-time. It turns out that at the mathematical level, that's a very tricky, subtle thing to do, and it requires slightly changing what you meant by energy, and so I think it's just safer to say that what you thought was a conserved quantity, the energy of the stuff in the universe, no longer is if the universe is expanding. And that's okay, whoever said that it should be. <laughs>
1: I like that. I I mean, it flies against every philosophy I've thought of when it comes to to the (laughs) idea of physics, where you can't just go, well, but um, I love it. Uh, Sean Carroll. Uh, but,
0: But sorry, but very, very quickly, it's not that all hell is breaking loose. There is a rule that is still obeyed. So that's what's really important here. It's not that the energy changes arbitrarily. It changes in a very predictable way in the expanding universe.
1: Right. Okay, well, um, Sean Carroll is the author of The Biggest Ideas in the Universe, Space, Time, and Motion. He talks about some of these basic principles and tries to move us on from comic book science to uh, a more deeper understanding. Uh, He's a fantastic science communicator, as you've heard. Pick up the book in bookshops. Now, Sean Carroll, thanks for your time.
0: Thanks very much for having me. He's brilliant,
1: isn't he? I, I I stand by what I said. I think it's good every once in a while to ask the stupid questions. And I realise that there's a gap in my knowledge in so many different domains that for some people is just, how could you not know that? But other people probably have those gaps too. Not our producer, Aidan McKelvey, though, who joins us <laughs> to go through the te- t- texts and tweets from last week. How are you?
4: Yeah, I'm pretty good. I cannot believe that Sean Carroll managed successfully to explain electricity to you. Uh, I was just being was, kind. I
1: still didn't get it.
4: Ah, come on, John. <laughs> that was actually it was actually fairly straightforward. No, I no, was actually taking it. I did well, get it.
1: I, I did get it. Quite did. Clear. But the problem is I'll forget it. That's the problem. The problem is yeah. I, he, I he did explain it well, but I will forget it. Um right. So last week we were talking about lots of different things, but the story that really got your attention was gender quotas. Um because in Australia they are handing out um gender quotas for funding for senior and mid-level researchers by one of the larger funding bodies in Australia to try and address the lack of opportunity and imbalance of uh, funding in Australia. We spoke to Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland, an organization that's also very keen to improve gender equality across the sciences and how uh, the sciences are funded. Ruth, I think, was uh, took a different different approach, and she was talking about a different approach that SFI took. Um, I favour quotas in theory, but how they work in practice is different. Um, Leo in Limerick says, Hi, news talk in the Australian gender quotas nonsense. What section of the grounds are awarded to non-gendered people? You seem to infer that they were included in the female section. Yeah, it did seem that they did that. I mean, I'm going to ignore the nonsense thing. I, 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 I presume you disagree with that, but you do agree that it is important to, to find a way to improve gender equality in sciences. I'm going to take that for granted, Leo, and just address this the question, uh, which is um, where non-gendered people, um, I presume you mean non-binary, and they are included in the, the, uh, the redressing. So there's 50% to women and non-binary, and then 50% to um, men. Uh, and that is, I believe, the, the quote they're going for. Um, Hi, Jonathan and Ruth. I have a few comments regarding the Australian grant system. I've actually stepped back from leading grants when I was in my mid-career as it was more strategic with the male PI. It worked and we were awarded the grant. Wow. That's pretty depressing, isn't it, Aiden? Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> like <laughs> mid-career deciding put the male PI forward because we'll get the money then. That's really depressing. Yeah. Um, In some countries, some fields are led and dominated by by men. Recently, I chaired a panel for one big grant organization. I flagged up this issue when two female colleagues and I realized the cards were stacked for males. We would actually mentioned the same thing the previous years. In essence, the big Wardies in the field are men and it's very hard to break that network because they have a huge machine and wealth of grant writing experience. The quality of the grant written style structure and ticking the boxes can also affect the outcome. Track record and the ethereal word ambitious is also very hard to quantify. Normally I'm not one to support female LGBTQ quotas for promotions etc but actually the cars are stacked against a big machine men grant holding. Um, There are a few FAR women machine grant holders. I'm not sure what a a big machine grant is. So that's a a failure on my behalf. I don't know if we can clear that up. But uh, she goes on to say, I believe that this action by the Australian Funding Agency is a positive um, move. Otherwise, we have groups that lose their way, idealist groups that reinvent themselves with aspects of novelty that aren't really novel, but a really well-written grant proposal by a machine thanks very much uh, Eva um uh, from Queen's University of Belfast send that on. I mean this is why I think the idea of um of uh, just letting meritocracy rise to the top when it comes to talent and science um evaluation when it comes to funding I think it's it's tricky. I think it's blunt as a tool, but um quotas could theoretically in one generation be a good move what are your what's your take on it, Aiden?
4: Yeah, I, I would agree with you that it's blunt. To be honest, I don't. I think we, you and I, kind of touched upon this a bit in a chat about uh, Nobel prizes maybe mm. a year or two ago. Um, I I don't. I think there's an inherent problem in trying to tackle one unfairness by introducing another
1: unfairness. But it's not unfair uh, if you make if you say there's just as many opportunities for men. So don't worry, men are not going to be discriminated either when you frame it that way. And say that like, don't worry, man. You get an opportunity too. Then you kind of realize how ridiculous the argument against making something unfair. It's fair. You just have to beat the other men in your organization.
4: No, but yeah, but that it, that it, that bakes in an, an inherent unfairness. So you're you're thinking about it as large groups, uh, whereas it's sort of a betrayal of the individual. Because in any given year, there may be the 60 best percent, the 60 best uh, scientists. Say, if we had 100 scientists, might be women. But 10 of those women aren't going to guess the grant if it's got to be 50-50. And I think that like, in an ideal world, obviously we don't live in an ideal world, you would just leave it free and easy and it gets picked the way it's getting picked. But obviously we recognise that that's not what's happening at the moment uh, and that there's various issues with that. But I, I think it's very blunt and, and maybe a better way to go about it when Ruth explained the SFI way, that uh, makes a lot more sense to me. That is whether or not... You like it because it's sort of le- leaving it to random chance. What they did there, just in case any listeners missed it or forgot of it, what it was was that you would take. Everyone gets above a certain once they get above a certain level, a certain accomplishment level in the science community, they are then eligible for the grant, and then the grants are picked by lottery. Yeah. Now, so I mean,
1: it, it. I mean, in that way, it's not really fair because there could be a grant that is so revolutionary that could change the world. Blah blah blah. And it just doesn't get picked out of bad luck, even though it is, you know, compared to one of the others, it's 51 percent. It could be 100 percent that it could be an absolutely astronomically good project. And the other project might have just squeezed into the lottery and get it. And the other one doesn't. So I don't think that's necessarily a a great either. But
4: it it is fair, you know, it's like it's like that. uh, I mean, uh, not to quote the Joker in Batman, but (laughs) he's like a randomness is fair <laughs> yeah like, I, but
1: I, I i i the the regardless of male or female i see better projects missing out here whereas if you say there's a quota the best projects will definitely get funded whether they're men or male or female it's just the ones that are down lower down they're the ones where you have to apply a 50 50 and i think that's a fair way column uh, got in touch he says uh, it's so disingenuine to say that your genitalia is a deciding factor on your insight in any technological field. I'm thinking of giving up on listening to you if you ascribe these kinds of lies. There will never be an exact parity in this particular field or in nursing or in kindergarten teaching, and manhandling it into place is the physical manifestation of a lie. This will have a long-term catastrophic effect on our ability to deal with the real world. Fantasists who promise the real world are a contradiction in terms. Well, um, I mean, to to start with your last point, column, I mean, if we see inequality in the world, should we just say, well, that's the way of the world, or should we do our best to try and improve it? Um, if we see that because of the fluke of birth, someone has chosen uh, someone is born a, a woman or a man, and as a result of that, uh, and the systems that lie in place, they don't get to do what they want to do or are really uh, good at. Or don't have the same same opportunities. Shouldn't we try and fix that? I mean, I think that's um, a pretty important thing. Um, whether or not your genitalia is a deciding factor on your insight of, into a technological field—that's the whole point. We're trying to say your genitalia shouldn't have a deciding factor on whether or not you could excel in a technological point. Is I'm making my point for me. And then you say, I, "I think of I'm thinking of giving up on listening to you if you describe these kinds of lies." So, I'm agreeing with you in the first part. And I agree with you that there will never be exact parity because you're talking about a homogenous group but we should strive to do our best to get parity of opportunity and then some men will be great one year some women will be great another year but the idea that a a woman can be told uh, you know look you go and study this because you're just not going to be as good as a man at it is just fundamentally wrong the reason we see certain men and certain women excel in, in science is often to do with the culture that lies in there. It's my own experience. I think it's borne out in, in, in a lot of research as well, which is why we're trying to fix it. Hayden?
4: Yeah, no, I broadly, I broadly agree. I, I think that um, it's a, an issue that certainly has to be tackled. But I just I don't I don't think like a whole generation. Like, I think it's easy for us to say, we'll do this for a whole generation. But if you're a scientist in that generation, that's your life. It doesn't. It doesn't matter what happened after you. Your whole career may be scuppered by. No, just
1: just to be clear, when I say you know one generation, I'm talking about one generation of uh, awards. So you know the first group of awards for five-year awards or whatever. I don't. You don't necessarily need to be mother to mother to daughter. I'm just talking about uh, uh, one tranche across the uh, across the whole board, doing it once. And after that, you'll find, you know, um, if, if they're short term awards, one year awards or two year awards, then you may need, a, uh, you know, you may need five years of it, but you'll find the quality just rises across the board. So so that's it. But like it, it's it's like saying, well, everyone's just going to have to wait for slow and voluntary incremental changes or we enforce Improvement and get exactly what we want immediately. And yes, some scientists will be there succeeding while wondering: Did I just get this because I was a woman, or did I just get this because I was a man? I I think that personally, on a grand scale of thing, we look at large groups. I think it's a I think it's a sacrifice worth making, even though it's not not me. Yeah, you don't
4: have to. You don't have to make the sacrifice. It's the key thing, though. Yeah,
1: but that's like saying let's protect five people. Um, you know, in uh, in lieu of of improving the lot for five hundred people, like it doesn't make any sense.
4: Yeah. Um, uh, no, I get, I, get, I get it. I just, I just think maybe there is a better way we can achieve it. And I think personally, I think the SFI way is a disagree. better way of achieving equality.
1: Disagree. Um, uh, all right. Sive um, was on about altruistic whales. We heard this amazing story about whales in the Arctic protecting seals from killer whales and and the the ecologist we spoke to was trying to figure out why would humpback whales do this why would humpback whales protect seals and put themselves in danger for uh, for killer whales i have to say i didn't find the the explanation very satisfying i did say it to him i said i don't really find it very satisfying and he kind of went well nobody's got any other uh, opinion so so which is fair enough um but I didn't buy it. Did you buy it? Um, so, like, I did. I'm
4: with you. I didn't find it very satisfying. But then, exactly that when I was doing the uh, the research call, he was like, "Have you got a better idea?" And I was like, "No, <laughs> not really." Um, although I did one thing that I did ask him. Maybe um,
1: maybe these humpback whales are saving seals because they're nice. Yeah, I said but that maybe seems re- much more simple to me.
4: I said maybe it's revenge. Uh, could could that was one thing I I said to him as well, and he was like, uh, "They're sort of not capable of revenge. It's too complex emotion." I was
1: like, "That complicated, complicated is it?" <laughs> but I, I guess I guess
4: he probably knows a little more than I do about. Mm. Yeah, I know this is uh, it. You always
1: have to go. We can just have fun conjecturizing or whatever the word is here, right? But yeah. um, realistically, he's an expert, so I'm I'm sure you know what he's talking about. But it's kind of fun to pretend. You understand something every once in a while.
4: Yeah, the use of the word conjecturizing probably like a straight it straight away rules me points. out of any it intelligent rules, conversation. Both, both, yeah.
1: Indeed, <laughs> Sive said, "Hi, Jonathan and everyone. I think the humpback whale could also be using their time practicing their skills by helping to save other marine animals and fish. So, that if they come across a killer whale attacking a mother and calf, then they're prepared." Always listen to the show as a podcast, and I enjoy it a lot. I'm writing this on the phone, I hope it makes sense. Saif, that's actually a pretty good theory, isn't it? Yeah, that that, yeah. that basically it's like playing, uh, they're playing with playing, um, being a guardian against these killer whales and practicing how to protect their own humpback whale calves in case they ever come across that situation with actual whales.
4: Yeah, and it bumps up a good, bumps up our cost benefits
1: thing. He was saying Indeed. there wasn't enough
4: benefit. That's, yeah. a, that's a really good theory. Maybe we should put that to Bob.
1: Yeah, why, why, why don't we do that? Um, Siobhan also says, Hi Jonathan, listen to your discussion on humpback whales saving seals from killer whales. I believe rather than saving the seals being altruistic, I think humpbacks seeing their own humpback babies killed by killer whales are saving the seals purely for their hatred of killer whales and its revenge. So you have another person for the re- ah, revenge camp. <laughs> you can th- so send yes. those two to Bob and see if either of them sit better with him. Uh, someone else said, Sounds like they just don't like killer whales, which, is, which could be that as well. Yeah. That's it from us on this week's Future Proof. Hope you enjoyed the program. Uh, big thanks to Aidan McKelvey, John Fardy, and Dee Keane, who were all producing this week, don't ask. Um, thanks also to Sinead Kyo and Simon Keane. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae.
2: Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland.
1: Sunday morning at 10. On Newstalk.